Now, with this being a holiday weekend, and with us being in between two sermon series, I get an opportunity this morning that I don't often get. On the preaching calendar, weeks like these are often labeled as open Sundays. And that means that whoever is preaching that week has the freedom to address a standalone text, a standalone topic that he senses could be good for the church and honoring to God. And again, I don't get many of these open Sundays. They're usually reserved for Zach or an elder or a guest preacher. So I'm pretty excited when I get these opportunities. And so a while back, I started thinking and praying and reflecting about what I might preach on. And here's where I landed. You know, there are many culture war issues that get lots of headlines in our day and age. And Christians and churches are very vocal about some of them. For example, many Christians and churches are outspoken about abortion, and rightfully so. We shouldn't shy away from speaking about the God-given value and dignity of the most vulnerable people in our society, those who haven't even left their mother's womb. Christians and churches are often outspoken about the culture war issues revolving around marriage and sex. And again, that's understandable. Marriage is one of the most foundational building blocks, not just of the church, but of society at large. And so we all have some skin in the game. And sex is a wonderful gift of God when it's practiced within the healthy boundaries that God has put in place. But when it's abused, it can cause catastrophic harm. And thankfully, Christians and churches, I think, or at least I hope, have started to do a better job of understanding and addressing things like racial justice. The faith that we profess absolutely has something to say about how we view and how we treat people of different skin colors, different cultural practices, because all people are created in God's image. But there's one culture war issue that many Christians and many churches haven't really put a lot of thought into and haven't really made a lot of efforts to address, even though it gets a lot of attention. And I'm talking about the issue of our environment. So what might scripture have to say about caring for the world we believe God made? So open up to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the Bible. Feel free to use our Bibles here if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for people who are in town, visiting family, new faces, old faces. Uh, Father, thank you for the people in this room. We pray for those who are traveling this weekend, as there are multiple families from the church traveling. But we pray that you would give them safe travel, give them good times with family and friends, and good times of rest. But Father, this morning, as we read from your word, I pray that it would challenge and inspire, and even convict us to think more deeply uh, about this issue that we don't often think about from a biblical perspective. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us come to that good conclusion. And, Father, thank you that you bring us together through your Son, Jesus Christ, that regardless of what's going on outside of us, regardless of what the world might tell us, regardless of all the different messages that we hear, we know that we are identified with Christ. We are associated with Christ. We are united with Christ. 
that Christ has come and lived and died and risen, and that Christ will come again. And so, Father, I pray that regardless of all the things that demand our attention, regardless of all the messages that we hear in this world, positive and negative, that we would find our identity in Christ above all else. Father, again, we love you. We thank you for this time we have together. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, first things first, I want to address what this sermon is not about. So this sermon is not about the scientific debate, or lack thereof, depending on your persuasion, over climate change. Likewise, this sermon is not about political agendas, whether you support Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's New Green Deal or Donald Trump pulling out of the Paris Agreement. This sermon is not about political agendas. And then finally, this sermon is not about whether or not you should eat meat, what kind of car you should drive, or whether or not fracking is a wise and sustainable means of acquiring natural resources. This sermon is not about those things because I can't claim to be an expert on any of those things. I can't speak with any competence and any authority on that stuff. But what I can try to do is turn our attention to the big picture that we learn from God's word. And so what does scripture teach us about the world that we live in? And how should these teachings inform our beliefs? And how should they inform our actions? So starting with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. So what does Genesis 1.1 teach us about our world? Well, obviously it teaches us that God made it. Now, you might hear that and think that's overly simple. It's a doctrine that we Christians take for granted. But the ramifications of that statement, Genesis 1-1, are incredibly important. I mean, just think about that. If God created the world, that means that there was a time when God existed, but our world did not. It also means that God is distinct from our world. The world is not God, and God is not the world, because he created the world. But it also means that our world is not the product of random chance. It's not the product of coincidence. It was created by someone, ordered in a certain way, with a specific purpose and end. And then as you move forward in Genesis chapter 1, verse 10, for example, You see that God created our world good. Over and over again, God said it was good. God rejoiced in the work of his hands. He gloried in what he had made. He was content with creation to the point of resting when it was complete. Some philosophies, some religions teach that anything material, the physical world, is bad. And humans should try to escape it, to live in some spiritual world, whether it's through meditation or some other practice. But scripture tells us that the world God made, the world that we live in, is good. If you jump forward to Genesis 1, verse 26, we learn more. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, And over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we also learn from Genesis 1 that God created humankind differently than everything else. Again, everything that God made was good. We're not taking that away from the plants, the animals, the land, the sea, and everything else. All that stuff is good. But it remains true that only humankind is described as uniquely bearing God's image. In the more detailed account of Genesis 2, we read that God breathed life into man's nostrils. That can't be said of all the other good things that God made. And then finally, Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So finally, we see in Genesis that God created man to tend his creation. In chapter 1, we read that Adam and Eve were given dominion over creation. They were called to subdue it. And some environmentally minded people chafe at those words. They associate words like dominion and subdue with words like dominate or exploit or abuse. But Adam and Eve were not called to dominate, exploit, or abuse creation. They were given the good task of working and keeping it. They were called to care for the Garden of Eden, to tend the world that God made. So up to this point, nothing I've said should be very controversial for Christians. I mean, this probably hasn't been the most profound or mind-blowing theology you've ever heard. But the point is that before you even get out of the first two chapters of the Bible, you already learn some incredibly important lessons about how we ought to relate to our world. God made it. It's his, not ours. And God gave it to mankind for our survival and tasked us with caring for it. But that's far from the end of it. Scripture has a lot more to say. For example, in the Bible, creation is often spoken of as if it were a person. In Leviticus 18, God warns the Israelites that if they taint the promised land with sin, the land will vomit them out. Sounds kind of gross. In Leviticus 25, God specifically instructs the Israelites about how often to plant crops so that the land can rest. In Job 31, Job defends his innocence and insists that he has not treated his land poorly. He says his land has no reason to cry out against him. And then in Isaiah 24, God says that mankind's sin can make creation mourn. Scripture speaks of the world as if it were a person, a person that can mourn, a person that can cry out, a person that needs rest, and even a person who can vomit. And while we're focusing most of our attention on the physical world, Scripture even addresses how mankind ought to treat animals. In Genesis 2, the animals were important enough to God that he charged Adam to give them names. Proverbs 12.10 says that the righteous have regard for the lives of their animals. 
In Matthew 6, Jesus says that the Father sustains the birds of the air. He arrays the lilies of the field. He clothes the grass. In Matthew 12, Jesus even suggests that saving the life of an animal is a worthy act of mercy, even if you have to do it on the Sabbath. But maybe one of the most common ways that Scripture speaks about creation is by showing us what it reveals about God himself. Psalm 8 is dedicated to God and nature. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Have you ever been out in nature and you see some incredible landscape, some beautiful scenery, and you find yourself in awe of the power and the wisdom and the creativity of God, and you find yourself thinking just how small you feel? Compared to all of it. That's how David's feeling in Psalm 8. He picks up in verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. Sounds like Genesis 1 and 2. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 19, verse 1, famously says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In Romans 1.20, which we read earlier this summer, Paul says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. In other words, you can look at the world and learn a whole lot about God. So scripture tells us that God made the world, that God entrusted it to us. It speaks of creation as though it were a person having a certain value and dignity. It even addresses how mankind treats animals and tells us that God's creation testifies to his glory. But there's an additional theme that's really important. And that's how the Bible tells us that our created world has a place in God's plan for redemption through Christ. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 96. And starting in verse 11, we read this. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So creation welcomes God's final day of judgment. The heavens, the earth, the sea, the fields, the trees celebrate the day of judgment. Psalm 98 says that the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing when God comes to judge the earth. Now, why in the world, pun intended, 
why in the world would the world celebrate God's day of judgment? I mean, isn't that day going to be dark and scary and destructive and violent and judgmental? Well, yeah, it will be. But not for everyone and not for everything. Creation welcomes the day of judgment because it is creation's day of redemption. Paul picks up on this theme in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So on God's day of judgment, the day when Christ returns, it isn't just those who have been justified by faith in Christ who will benefit, who will celebrate. Creation itself will be redeemed. The futility, the corruption, the decay, the groaning, the mourning, the crying out, the fallenness of our created world will be no more. Because our sin, the thing that has corrupted God's good world, will be no more. So Christ's return is good news for all who have believed in him. But it's also good news for creation itself. And then finally, look at Revelation 21. We started way back in Genesis. Now we go to the other side of the Bible, the very end. Starting in Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The glorious promise of Christ's return. Our Christian hope is his bringing with him the new heavens and the new earth. And that won't happen in some faraway place in the sky. It happens here. The kingdom of God comes down out of heaven and is established here. Like our bodies, creation will be given new life. It will be transformed and redeemed, never to be subjected to the consequences of sin Ever again. God will dwell with mankind, and mankind will dwell with God in a good world, a world even better than the Garden of Eden. So, if you put it all together, and if Scripture says all of this stuff about our created world, 
If all this stuff is true, then why is it that so many Christians have often been silent or even negligent about our world? Well, the truth is that's a new phenomenon. Historically, Christians haven't always been this way. John Calvin once described creation as the theater of God's glory. Jonathan Edwards once said that God's excellency, his wisdom, his purity, and love seem to appear in everything. In the sun, moon, and stars, in the clouds and blue sky, in the grass, flowers, trees, in the water, and all nature. There's the well-known hymn that we sometimes sing here, This is my father's world. In 1970, Francis Schaeffer, a conservative evangelical philosopher and theologian, wrote a book entitled Pollution and the Death of Man. And he was drawing Christians' attention to our responsibility to care for creation. In the same year, John McConnell, the son of a pastor, a Christian himself, led the charge in the founding of Earth Day. Again, it hasn't always been like this. Christians haven't always been silent or negligent when it comes to caring for our world. But the sad truth is that most American Christians today haven't paid this sort of attention to caring for creation. That includes me. That includes most of us, I'm sure. It may be because of how we read some passages of Scripture. For example, 2 Peter 3 is sometimes read as God destroying the world with fire on the day of judgment. When really, a more scriptural reading might be one of God redeeming the world, purifying the world by fire before it's transformed. A few years ago, a popular preacher argued that Christians shouldn't care about the world because God's just going to burn it all up anyway. But theologian Douglas Moo says the ultimate destiny of creation is not annihilation, but transformation. And so if God has such big plans for his creation in the future, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that maybe we should try to take care of it now. Now, the other reason that some Christians and churches may be silent or neglectful about creation is that we don't want to be associated with those people. And I think you might know who I'm talking about. We're talking about the people that we think of when it comes to caring for the environment. The ones that conservative Midwestern Christians like us may sarcastically refer to as the hippies or the tree huggers or the social justice warriors or the liberals. You know, those people. One book even warned believers that any attempt by Christians at environmental stewardship is part of the New Age plot. Sounds pretty scary. But perhaps Christians should be more vocal about caring for the environment. Even if it means, God forbid, that we come to some of the same conclusions as those people on some things. And perhaps we can even use those opportunities that common ground with those people to remind them about why the world they care for so much matters. The world doesn't just matter because we all live here. The world matters because God made it. So if everything that we've said today is true, that God made the world, that God entrusted the world to us, 
that the world testifies to God's glory, and that the world is the place of God's future redemption through Christ, then it shouldn't be a stretch to suggest that God's people ought to strive to take care of it. Now, I don't have any specific steps to throw at you about how to do that. You can figure that out on your own. But maybe two big principles might help. Principle number one, reading what we've read today, may we be more grateful for the world that God has made. On Friday, on my way to the men's breakfast, I woke up a few minutes late. A few people have already heard this story. And I was all out of sorts, got thrown off my routine, and I left my red Bible that I'm normally preaching with. Now I'm preaching with this brown Bible. I left my red Bible on the roof of my car and drove to Chick-fil-A, and it was not on the roof of my car when I got there. And that Bible was a gift from my parents a couple years ago. It was very, very nice. It was an expensive Bible. And, of course, I felt terrible about it. So I might not be a good example of this illustration I'm about to give. But when someone you love gives you a priceless gift, do you abuse it? Do you neglect it? Do you put it on the roof of your car and then drive away with it? Maybe you do because you're a sinner and because I'm a sinner. But what we should do is protect that gift, treasure that gift, care for that gift, appreciate that gift as a showing of their grace, as a showing of their generosity. Not abuse it, not neglect it. May we do the same thing for the gift of creation. May we love it. May we be grateful for it and praise God for it. And then another principle that maybe can guide us is to let Jesus' teaching about loving our neighbors inform how we treat creation. Because after all, a good way to love your neighbors is to try not to ruin the place where they live. So maybe we should care for the world God gave us. Now, of course, there are errors of the environmentalism movement that Christians should work to avoid. As we mentioned earlier, we need to remember that creation is distinct from God. He made it, that's true. But the world is not God, and God is not the world. Christians are not pantheists. Pantheism is the idea that God is in all of creation, and creation and God are essentially synonymous. But we don't believe that. We care for creation, but we remember that it is not God. And on a related note, don't worship the world. There's been a revival of many forms of ancient paganism in our world today. Some would call it New Age religions. But we need to remember as followers of Christ that the most basic definition of idolatry is worshiping creation rather than the creator. As we read earlier this summer in Romans 1, that sort of idolatry invites God's wrath. We do not worship the world because God is not the world. We worship the creator, not the things he's made. As we close, reading Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Paul's speaking of Christ, and he says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul tells us that all things were created by Christ, for Christ, and through Christ. And that the redemption and reconciliation of all things to himself only happens through the cross. And we believe that Christ came into this world to die for sinners, so that all who would believe in him would be reconciled to God. And we also believe that Christ will come again to this world to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So may we look forward to that day with hope. The hope that it won't just be the day of our redemption, but the day when creation is transformed. May we commit ourselves to the good work of being responsible stewards of the gift that God has given us while we wait. And if you think that creation testifies to God's glory now, just wait until you see it when it's redeemed through Christ. That's what we have to look forward to. So may we care for what God has given us right now. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Whenever we pray, we thank you for all kinds of things. We thank you for wonderful gifts and wonderful blessings and wonderful privileges that not everyone in this world has, that not everyone in history has had. But sometimes we don't thank you enough for simply creating the world that we live in. We don't thank you enough for the air that we breathe. We don't thank you enough for the ground that we walk on. We don't thank you enough for the splendor of creation. And so, Father, we thank you for creating this world. We thank you that you are still intimately involved with this world, that you didn't just create it and then let it run by itself, but that you are still interacting with this world. You are still sustaining this world day in and day out, and our world is only held together by your power and by your sovereignty. And so, Father, I pray that we would care for the world that you've given to us as a gift of your grace, a gift of your generosity, a gift of your kindness. And, Father, I pray that our care for the world would reflect what we believe about you, that we would care for the world in a way that shows people we really do believe that you made it, we really do believe that you care for it. We really do believe that your son Jesus will return to it. And so, Father, I pray that we would be good stewards of the gift you've given to us, not just for our good, but for the good of our neighbors, and not just for the good of our neighbors, but for your glory as well. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.